just got a text from somebody who said, um, you know, I love your twisted mind. They watched the Santa Gopher video that we did for uh, this music, the song. It's, it is music, but it is a Christmas song featuring Santa Gopher, a character that I created. And we sang it as a country western song. Anyway, I've been sending that out. And if you haven't seen it, please watch it. But, you know, people respond. They go, I love your twisted mind, this old friend of mine said. And uh, I thought about it for just a half a second. And it's always dangerous. But I thought about the twisted mind. Because, you know, I think people assume that a comedian or a creative guy or a wacky guy like myself uh, strains to present a facade of having a twisted mind. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but um, <laughs> sadly, it's not something that I have to uh, conjure up. Uh, my mind works in a way that is uh, twisted. Has it twisted is a loaded word because twisted also means perverse, and um, it could mean very, very aberrated or even evil. The twisted genius, you know, it's someone who has redirected their energy. Uh, in a way that one would not find desirable, you know. And, you know, that's one definition of it and one connotation of it. The other one is kind of like, oh, you're so twisted. You know, like it's a little more affectionate, a little more forgiving. And I think, th I think my buddy just meant it in that kind of, I hope he just meant it in that sort of affectionate way. I'm here with Spike DeFay. Spike is always at the forefront of uh, extreme sports and uh, um, at the outdoors and bringing experiences to people uh, that they wouldn't ordinarily have. Uh, people of all uh, economic uh, strata, but particularly the very wealthy. Spike, you've got something that's just extraordinary. First of all, thanks for coming into the studio. I know you're, you're busy with a lot of the things and touring the world and always on the run. I'm really happy to be here. Well, great. Now, I want to talk specifically about this special service that you're offering now to Mount Everest because uh -huh. uh, uh, Mount Everest, of course, is the symbol of uh, so many business people and so many uh, sportsmen and enthusiasts sure and athletes look at that as literally right. as their Everest. Right. And, uh, of course, it takes so a lot of people don't realize it takes months uh, to prepare uh, to go and, and really uh, mount the summit. Uh, but you've reduced this now to a single afternoon uh -huh. and you're allowing people to be whisked to the top of Mount Everest with your special uh, hover helicopter and right. down and safely down to earth. Uh, it's a tremendous project. Has anything like that ever been done before? Never has been done before. And by the way, it's called a Hoover Copter. So this is a great opportunity for a businessman who right. doesn't have a lot of time. Doesn't have a lot of time, but wants to experience something. Uh -huh. And sitting at the top of Mount Everest, they don't have time to train, perhaps. But this does not require a lot of training. No, it doesn't require a lot of training. And and, and it does appeal to the businessman especially. I actually got the idea. You know, I used to be a, I used to be a pencil pusher. Mm -hmm. I used to be behind a desk. And I got so... Hard to imagine. Well, I know. Look, looking at me now, I know. I, I, I've been outdoors so, so much. Anyway, I was so tired of looking at inspirational posters that they put up around many offices. You know, be the best you can be, uh, enthusiasm, people in a skull right. all rowing together. Right. And very often there'd be a picture of Mount Everest. And I thought, oh, well, that's unattainable. Of course anybody can get in a boat and pull an oar. But 
Mount Everest, that's a rarefied thing. And who has the time? At that time, I didn't even have the time, but I wanted to get to Everest. And I thought, how do I get there and get there fast? Mm-hmm. And, of course, Everest is very physically dangerous. Is uh, the, the cliffs of Everest still, uh, there are many bodies of people that tried to make it to the summit and perished in the uh, inevitable storms that roar through. There have been so many articles, essays, books about how dangerous it is, and I wanted to bypass all of that. Mm-hmm. And so you've invented the Hoover Copter. Now, how long does it take to go? You're not even a base camp. Base camp is, uh, is like at 18,000 feet. Right. You're down at, at basically at sea level. We are at sea level. In fact, your adventure starts from a resort spa of your choosing, because there are several. Mm-hmm. But you uh, recommend the Mongolia Hyatt. We have, we have a relationship with them, and uh, we've built in uh, special discounts mm-hmm. and uh, added attractions, and uh, it's, a full, it's a full resort and spa. Mm-hmm. But you're at sea level. They, mm-hmm. they, get, they roll out of bed. They go to the, the brunch. That's right. You go to a brunch. Your day begins by sleeping in, because sleep is very important. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure people are well-rested. Mm-hmm. So your day begins at the brunch, and it's a great brunch. It's an all-you-can-eat brunch, and uh, you go in groups of five, and so you line up, and uh, you can eat heartily, and at that brunch is where you look over a very, very small brochure. Mm-hmm. So you get a little orientation. A little orientation. It's there that they pick out their seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's in a the lot ho- of fighting over the, uh, over the window seat. Oh, there, there certainly is. You, pick, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head, and that is a good competitive spirit to have. Mm-hmm. So you've eaten heartily. You've looking over a small, colorful brochure, uh, laminated. You can take that brochure with you. And from there, you're whisked onto the Hoover Copter, and you're beginning your ascent of Everest. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, So you're going from, from basically from sea level level up to 29,000 feet. Right. Uh, and how long does that take? 27 minutes. 27, so less than a half an hour. You're there at the top of Everest. Then they uh, they, they clamber out. Uh, your photographer takes pictures of them. Uh, they look uh, victorious up there on the summit. And then before they really start to feel the effects of the oxygen, I assume they get back into Back into Hoover the Hoover Copter as fast as possible. Now, here is an interesting thing. We have to put them in the right gear. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not totally necessary because they're only going to be exposed to the elements for about 36 seconds. That Hoover Copter is pretty well heated on the inside, isn't it? It's like a microwave in there, and it has to be. So you are whisked out. You have your oxygen mask on. Mm-hmm. You're asked to remove your oxygen mask so you can get a nice pearly white smile. We take a couple of pictures. You view north, south, east, and west, and then you are directed right back into the Hoover Copter. Uh, Spike, this is an incredible opportunity. I'm sure there's a lot of executives out there that are going to want to take an afternoon, go up to Mount Everest, and feel the incredible victory of standing at that summit and realizing that they made it. Yeah, we want to let people know that anything, anything is possible, especially, especially hitting Everest. So no longer do you have to be a pencil pusher looking at a poster that talks about Everest. Why don't you go to Everest and uh, come with me, Spike Dufay. But um, it's true that certain minds are uh, just, you know, off kilter a little bit, not in an unhealthy way necessarily, uh, but in a way that's certainly different from other people. And that's what makes it twisted. And that's what makes it kind of pleasant, I think, for for people who look at my content and uh, I'm learning how to call it content rather than specifically videos and blogs and things like that. But people that look at my content and go, wow, that's kind of twisted. And I still wish there was another word that people would use. And and often I don't I don't hear that word that often really, but it just it does pop up. And um, I think I am out of agreement pleasantly with a lot of contemporary tastes. I think a lot of the time I'm quite, I don't know, quite conventional. Like uh, my comedy, I notice, is not terribly off the wall. And it's very gently laid out. And I really do cleave more uh, to old forms 
you know, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm 58 years old. So, of course, you know, I can remember very well Bob Newhart and uh, even Bob Hope, you know, and these kind of gentle ways of setting up a little, a little scenario that you then topple over to create the, the comedy, you know, and it isn't toppled over with a, a machine gun. I don't use a, an H-bomb, you know, or anything like that. Um, it's gentle. And, and I think in a way that that's sort of conventional and maybe a little not as edgy. You know, I've heard that a lot. You know, I've never heard my comedy described as edgy in, in, in any way. And when I try to be edgy, you know, by being borderline maybe offensive or what I would consider to be a little bit, I don't know, just a little bit compromised that way and, and impolite or weird, just just weird. Um, I don't like it as well, and and I and I don't see I don't think I do it that well. You know, other people I you know I, until very recently, I thought the master of that, and he still is, but I just don't think of it that way. Is Louis C.K who always walked an interesting line, at least in front of a microphone. So, I don't know. So, I, I, I guess I, I have a twisted sense of humor, but I hope it's twisted in the direction of gentle disagreement with the status quo uh, in order to get people to also join me outside the box where I've been thinking. Maybe people describe you that way. You know, there's nothing that great about being totally in lockstep with the sense of humor of the day. It's interesting that Monty Python, which was so revolutionary and which created, was so I think uh, Gary Vee would say is disruptive. They were a disruptor, uh, Monty Python, and very, very actively a disruptor. And at the time, it seemed like such a violent overthrow of comedy. Uh, it was so out of step and out of agreement with comedic forms of the day, frame, uh, kind of references, kind of structures and forms and things that they build up, templates of how to, how to present something, a sketch, you know, and where it could go. They really burst everybody's expectations. But even they, looking now with, you know, in hindsight, we can see how they came out of a very traditional form themselves. And, um, and of course, today they're very, uh, you know, it's actually kind of predictable, kind of conventional still very funny because it's 100% good quality uh, humor. There's, it has all the components. In other words, it has something that you can accept and it has something that you can immediately reject. And that's what humor is. I, in, to my mind, it's like someone describes some sort of thing like, uh, you know, I went to, I went, uh, to uh, Hawaii last week. Okay, great. We can all kind of picture that. We can kind of accept that. There's nothing disturbing about that, nothing intellectually challenging about it. He went to Hawaii. Uh, but if we just say it would have, but if we then add, you know, I don't recommend water skiing there. It took like three days and my feet are really blistered. Now, if you, if you had the performance chops to pull that off and with the assurance and the you know, the uh, uh, convincing emotion of someone who just stepped off of a pair of water skis and went all the way from L.A. to Hawaii, then it would be somewhat funny. But anyway, that's what I'm trying to say, I guess, is I'm trying to work my way around, is that the, the, uh, the traditional forms uh, were honored by Monty Python, but they were given just a new look, and they were 
a new frame of reference, a new kind of delivery. And then, you know, I know, speaking as a 13 or 14-year-old boy, maybe 15 when, when I really started to get hip to Monty Python, I had never heard such a beautiful variety of British accents and references. The Empire Pool Wembley, um, you know, all the strange names of towns and, and areas in England. And then, you know, the wonderful voices, male and female, with all the wonderful dialects of the British Isles was just like a treasure trove. And add on to that, all the crazy emotions, all the weird departures, all the sudden left turns into just craziness. Again, twisted, you know, twisted and crazy, twisted and crazy, but in a really, really good way because they did it on purpose. They weren't maniacs who were just spouting and somebody was recording them. No, they were artists who were crafting that. You know, I imagine as they sat around writing, you know, they would think of things just as I was doing right now, thinking, okay, what would be the weird thing about a trip to Hawaii? Hmm. And they probably went, "Mm, water skiing, no, too tame. Um, Maybe um, Jonah. It's a, it's a scene where Jonah in the Bible gets uh, is lined up and it's like he's down at Southampton and he's going to take the, the ocean liner to Hawaii, only it's a whale. And he enters, because he didn't have much money, he enters in the, in the stern, uh, the rear end of the whale. And, you know, it's, it's his trip and the kind of thing. And there's a whole bunch of people inside the whale that are in steerage with him which turns out to be, you know, in the whale's guts, and it's totally disgusting. But they're all so pleased because they're going to Hawaii, and they know nothing about Hawaii. But, you know, that would be the way that they would kind of maybe think through this thing. And then with their artistry and their theatricality, because they're all, most of them anyway, terrific theatrical actors. You know, Eric Idle was just a wonderful, wonderful performer, 100% commitment. John Cleese, 100% commitment. Michael Palin. These guys were just really totally skilled. They could do legitimate theater, and they could do this crazy offbeat stuff that they created. Uh, so when it was all tempered with that, it was just this this one-two punch of quality and and you know exchange to an audience, especially an American audience and and now a world audience. I I don't know if it had the same impact in England because England would have been much more less charmed, let's say, by some of the references. They, they probably all kind of understood. But in America, to a young man, man, it was just like like a golden treasure chest. I remember my dad brought home these records. That was my first exposure to Monty Python, records that you would put on your turntable. One of them famously had three sides because it was double grooved on one side. I think it was Matching Tie and Handkerchief was the name of the album. Anyway, I'll never forget the joy. Anyway, to finish that thought, I I realized that, you know, even though I'm not trying to have a twisted sense of humor, I probably always will have because I'm always looking for something that I haven't kind of thought of before, something that interests me, and something that is unique to my experience, my background, my education, my sensibility, my frame of reference. And nobody's got the same frame of reference and background that I have. A lot of people do have a similar one, but, you know, I've had a kind of a particular sort of life. Uh, I mean, that's why that's why I cherish my old friends. You know, we've been through all kinds of uh, similar experiences together in the, in the theater in New York or out here in L.A. doing uh, television shows or projects or whatever together. And, you know, that's a kind of like a it's like a battle. It's, it's this lifetime for me. That's as close to a battle as I hope to come. 
and, and just as interesting and engaging. And, you know, most of the people live through it, most of them. So, I don't know. It's always going to be, I suppose, com- anything coming from my camp is going to be, and from my mind, is going to be unusual. But I guess that, but that's also the value I realize. That is the, that's the value that I bring. I have for you a new point of view about things. In some ways, the things that I talk about and the things that I believe are, are very mundane, very simple, very much shared by a lot of people. You know, nothing, nothing crazy outside the box, nothing uh, really tremendously brilliant. But, you know, every now and then I say something or I come up with something that I think, oh, I, this is very typical. Uh, this is something that anybody could do. And someone surprises me by saying, wow, I never in a million billion years would have thought of that. And that shocks me sometimes because, of course, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I figure everybody's like me. I figure, well, you, you all kind of see the world the same way I do. <laughs> Not a chance. I don't see the world the way, I, the way you do. I don't, see the way, I don't see the world the way I do half the time. And that's just because my eyesight's going. Anyway, just wanted to finish that thought. A good thing about having an unusual point of view is that, you know, you never lose it. Uh, What you lose, I think, and where people dry up is in confidence in sharing their unusual point of view. Uh, Or, you know, maybe they get uh, disabused of... uh, in other words, disenchanted with sharing their ideas because they've been shot down or they've been poo-pooed or they've been ignored or criticized, you know, then, that, then that, that'll cure you from sharing things for sure. Um, but I don't know. I still feel very confident and uh, I don't have a huge axe to grind. I'm not trying to take anybody down. I'm not trying to change the world particularly. I'm trying to make the world a better place. But I, re- I recognize that's a that's a slow process. When you think about the amount of chaos uh, just on this planet. And apparently, there are others. I mean, if we had to go to... If Earth was all totally handled, we had to go to Venus because they have the real problem in Venus because nobody can live there. we got to clean it up. <laughs> I don't think that project's ever going to get done. I think that's one that we just kind of go, you know what? Venus is just fine the way it is. you know. But the moon is going to be populated. That's, that's a certainty. If we can keep uh, life on this planet... It'll be just super smart and, and relatively simple, as I hear, uh, to, to put life on the moon, to put buildings on the moon and, and habitats and stuff like that. You can mine oxygen out of uh, the, the uh, lunar soil. It's a thing called helium-3 that they have an abundance up there, apparently, that you can make oxygen out of. I've heard that for years, and uh, it was told to me by... Uh, an Apollo mission controller, so I, I believe it, and I've read it otherwise. And and then recently I saw that there's some huge underground kind of cavity in the moon's crust that would be perfect. You know, like it's, it's big, really super big, like many, many football fields big that we could put some kind of moon base in. A moon base. Man, I mean, people used to talk about this stuff all the time in the early 60s. And I think I agree with people that say that if we take our attention off of you know, the stupid arguments on this planet and start, you know, engaging in a, a bigger enterprise off this planet, you know, like the moon, um, that people will kind of forget about fighting so much. I, I think that could be true. The maniacs, of course, will always prefer to fight, but they'll be they'll stand out more because everybody else will be busy getting into their moon gear. 
Hey, how come you're not putting on your moon gear? Because I'm a maniac. I'm more interested in fighting. By the way, this is my axe. Cool, man. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. It's the uh, end of the year here. I don't know if I'm going to do another podcast or not, but I really, really appreciate you listening. Uh, we have a great holiday season. Thanks to Jeff Levin for the music. Thanks to Tate Rupert for the improv. And I'll talk to you all again real soon. Happy holidays. <laughs>